you would take your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. As we continue our study of this psalm, a psalm that is entirely devoted to blessing God. It's a psalm that doesn't say, David doesn't ask for anything in this. He doesn't ask God for anything. There's no prayer request. There's no prayer request for others. There's no intercession. He's not asking about the enemies he's facing. He's not asking about God, you know, that he would provide him with something. Though those are fine things to pray for. I I just mean in this psalm, David's not doing any of that. All of this, all of it, is simply a rehearsal of what are the expressions of God's goodness. And I felt like during the month of November, especially in light, circumstances that we are facing, you know, the ongoing uh, health issues and concerns that we have related to a virus, uh, ongoing concerns we have culturally, right, related to the aftermath of the election. It's good for God's people to be reminded that these circumstances have nothing to do with whether or not we bless God. Nothing to do with it. Now, we might have reasons to bless God when some of our circumstances go better, and we should acknowledge that, but even if everything uh, seems to be falling apart, we can bless God even in burdensome times. And so in the season of Thanksgiving, I thought it would be good that we turn our attention to a song that focuses entirely on, on what it means to bless the Lord. This morning... We're going to pick up in verse 8, and we'll be looking at verses 8 through 18. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He's not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth... So great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. And His righteousness to children's children, to such as keep His covenant, and to those who remember His commandments to do them. A little bit of a survey. Uh, I hate it when pastors do this. I never raise my hand. But I'm going to do it. All right? How many of you would say you have a razor-sharp memory and you don't have trouble remember, remembering anything? So, so we do have a couple of hands, by the way, all right? I'm not going to point them out because then you'll test them, okay? Now, now, inevitably that does happen, right? There are a few folks who would say, now whether they say razor-sharp, but there might be folks who would say, you know what, as far as my memory is concerned... Uh, yeah, I feel like I can remember things pretty well. We just had a gaggle of children who have no trouble memorizing, all right? So they weren't in here to raise their hands, but perhaps they would have. 
But how many of you would say, nope, day to day, I wish I could remember stuff better? Anybody? All right. Okay. I mean, yeah, that's, that's kind of the way things are, right? I mean, mem- memory can be such a frustrating thing at times. Because on the one hand, there is stuff that we remember. Sometimes weird things. Like you might remember from 30 years ago the first phone number you ever had. The first address you ever lived at. You might remember the the name of the person that sat next to you in third grade. Remember the one you cheated off of, right? You might remember that person. And yet you will encounter somebody in Walmart and they will have a conversation with you. Clearly you know one another, but the whole time you don't know what they're saying because the only thing you are thinking is, I know this person, I don't know where from. Can I get away with saying, nice to see you, brother? All right? In other words, can I say something like that? Like, hey, man, it was good to see you. Yeah, good talk. Hope the family is well. Right? In other words, that's kind of what we're hoping we can get away with because we can't remember it. We watch a movie. We see an actor, an actress that we've probably seen a hundred times. And then we just think, I know I've seen them before. What else have they been in? Of course, Google helps with that these days, right? So there's things we can remember from from way back. I I read that there are 30 people who have, it's really considered like a problem. It it is a hyper form of memory. They've identified 33 people in the world who can remember the weather from every single day of their life. November 3rd, 1964. Well, it started out drizzly. It was 60 degrees till the uh, clouds parted, and it got warmer and got up to 65. There are people who can do that, 33 of them, apparently. It seems like a weird skill. I don't know how marketable that is, right? But there are people who can do that. I mean, so on the one hand, that's what can be done. You, people can remember that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, you have trouble recalling what you had for breakfast maybe just a few hours ago, right? Memory's a weird thing. Yeah, but it turns out, I mean, this is kind of who we are. And at the end of the day, it's pretty well established that of all the tips and tricks that you can come up with on how to remember stuff, right? Little, little you know, um, hacks you can use to try and improve your memory. They still say that at the end of the day, the best way to remember stuff is to rehearse it over and over and over again. That there is a connection with implanting that in your mind, which initially you might think you already know, but you continue to repeat and repeat and repeat. I've I've always found it interesting about Psalm 103. that, That really, you know, when you read through this and even what we just read, I mean, when you read through Psalm 103, there's nothing in here that strikes me as like, wow, I've never heard that about God. In fact, one of the most interesting phrases in the entire psalm is kind of the key phrase in Psalm 103.2, where David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. I mean, my gut reaction to that is, how do you forget the benefits of God? I mean, how is it that those aren't just always on your mind? How is it they're not just always there, available for recall? How is it that we can find ourselves in a set of circumstances where we have to intentionally 
rehearse these things. I mean things as basic, like that followed in that very passage, God's forgiveness, God's giving me redemption, God crowning me with righteousness. I mean, how is it that we would forget these things? I mean, obviously what David means here is not that we like forget and can never remember. What he means is it can be easy, especially with the way our minds work, that we can lose sight of these things, that in fact, there is great benefit to you and I rehearsing over and over and over again some of the even most basic benefits of God. This is why I like Psalm 103. This is why I think it's such a helpful psalm for us. It's why I think it's helpful in this season of thanksgiving and gratitude, because this is all David's concerned with doing. He wants to bless God And in fact, David's doing it in a very specific location, his own soul. David spends the entire psalm talking to himself, rehearsing things that he undoubtedly already knows, but finding himself in whatever circumstances they may be, which by the way, Psalm 103 is interesting. We don't have any idea the context of it. We don't know the story behind it. We don't know when David wrote it. And I think that's by design because it doesn't matter. Because I can sing Psalm 103 regardless of my circumstances. And so David does us a great benefit by calling upon his own soul to speak words of blessing to God by rehearsing the blessings God bestows on his people. I think he gives us great direction on what it looks like for you and I to bless God even in burdensome times. We can still bless God for his goodness even when we find ourselves walking through dark and difficult days. So how do we do this? Well, there's four ways. We've looked at two. We're going to look at a third one this morning. So we've already noted how we bless God when we acknowledge His blessings. All right? In other words, we just take the time to talk to ourselves, to speak to God in our souls about God. We, we recognize the ways in which we've been blessed. We looked at that the first week. Last week, we looked at the second one. We bless God when we affirm His righteousness. And we spent all of our time on two verses. And, and, and I hope it was a benefit to us. I think it was a bit of a salve for the soul to be reminded of what is God's ultimate righteousness and justice that will reign on the earth and in his kingdom forever, all right? That we can be assured of that, even when it seems like unrighteousness and injustice seem to be the, the special of the day, right? Well, this morning, we're going to look at a third one, and that is we bless God when we appreciate his mercy. I know it's, it's not all that profound, You're not going to walk away from here thinking, wow, I didn't know God was a merciful God. This is not the first time you've ever heard of God's mercy. And yet, David is going to spend verses 8 through 18 reflecting on this very simple, though not simplistic, and basic attribute of God. A way in which God relates to us And what what is, again, a simple way, yet at the same time, deeply profound. Now, I know what you're thinking. Pastor, it took you a long time to do two verses last week, 8 through 18. 
Seriously? Five points? I don't believe it. All right, so challenge accepted. So get ready, listen fast, write fast, because that's what we're going to do. I practiced this once at nine, all right, and they're not still here, so we didn't just keep going. So we made it, so we can make it here too, right? As we reflect on God's mercy, I think we see in these verses what are at least uh, five ways in which God, uh, five ways in which we understand this mercy. What is God's mercy like? Because again, David's going to give us a lot of ideas. There's going to be some imagery, uh, some analogies here that kind of flesh out what this means. So what does it look like uh, to to bless God for his mercy? So if you want to take notes, here you go. Number one, I I think the first truth about God's mercy that, that David draws our attention to, God's mercy is an abounding mercy. It It abounds. It overflows. It's it's far more than enough. Notice what he says again in verse 8. Now he begins by saying, The Lord is merciful and gracious. So again, just the way, you know, kind of Hebrew poetry goes, and we've talked about some of the features of this already in the psalm. David seems to have in mind mercy and grace somewhat synonymously. These are... He basically has the same idea in mind, though I I think there might be some distinction between the two words. And this is is often a helpful way that mercy and grace are distinguished from one another. Mercy is God not giving me what I deserve, and grace is giving me what I don't deserve. That's pretty simple, and and again, we don't want to drive that too hard and fast there uh, to make that a kind of hard, dividing, theological line between the two terms. But this is is maybe often how they are couched, but they do go together, all right? God's mercy and God's grace, because I need both. And so there is overlap in these ideas, but God being merciful and God being gracious combined, it means on the one hand, God doesn't do what I deserve Him to do. I deserve death. I deserve immediate, eternal death. There's no doubt. I deserve judgment. And by by the way, before you think, wow, pastor, what have you done? All right? Mm. You do too. No, no, No one's exempt from this. Again, sorry, not really sorry to bring up Romans, but here it is, right? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All right, so that's just the absolute certainty here. So God's not done that. And on top of that, God has given me what I cannot earn. I can't earn salvation. God hasn't given me a list of all these good works that I do that that when I get to the end of the list, He says, all right, good, you're in. That's not how this works. I can't earn it. God in His grace has saved me. He's done for me what I could not do for myself and has not given to me what I do deserve. All right, so His mercy and His grace kind of combined to, and I've just used the word mercy here to describe it all, But it's that second part of the verse, slow to anger, idea we'll get to in just a second, and abounding in mercy. It's an abounding mercy. I just love this idea because this means I'm not just kind of squeezing through the gates of heaven, right? I'm not just barely getting in. God is not doling out mercy 
pennies at a time. God's not deciding to give me just a little bit here and there, you know, to tide me over. In fact, here'd be a way to illustrate it. God's mercy is not like a debit card or a prepaid phone. Can you imagine what the Christian life would have been like if that's how God had decided to do this thing? If instead of doing it how he did it, God had said, all right, when you're saved, here you go, 4,000 mercy credits in your account. Use them wisely over the course of your life. But once you use up the 4,000, you're done. Can you you imagine what that'd be like? Woo! That'd be horrible. But that's not what he's done. God's not giving me mercy in those terms. In fact, God's not even just giving me a little bit of mercy. God's not even giving me mercy that just enables me to scrape by. It's abounding. It's overwhelming. It's inexhaustible. You never reach the limitations of God's mercy in in, in and of yourself. You, you, You don't come to the end of it. You can't exhaust it. God's mercy is an abounding, overwhelming, bountiful mercy. In fact, one of the blessed truths of God's mercy, God doesn't require me to live today in yesterday's mercy, does He? One of the greatest verses on this topic in the Bible comes in one of the most depressing books of the Bible. Lamentations. When you talk about depressing books, there's top three. Job, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations. You want to be just really sad for a few days? Read all those in a row, all right? They're hard. I'll just tell you, all right? So if you're thinking, you know what? I don't want to be happy today. Uh, I want to be really sad. Well, there you go. Read Job, read Ecclesiastes, read Lamentations. I mean, it's called Lamentations. What else are you going to do but be sad at the end of it? That's its point, right? Except right in the middle of it. It gives us this promise. God's mercy is new every other year. Seeing if you're listening. But God's mercy is new every morning. And that, by the way, should not be taken as if God gives you mercy first thing in the morning and you've got that. It's it's just a way of saying God always gives us over-sufficient mercy for whatever moment that we're in. It's abounding. It's an abounding mercy. All right, number two. God's mercy is also patient Expressed in his patience, if you would. You can even use another word, and it would make them all INGs. It's the word long-suffering. Long, I think that's a good word for patience. That patience is suffering long, right? Whether it's patience you show toward somebody else, patience somebody else has to show toward you, right? Long-suffering is just a good word. And so it's interesting then that the next bit of language that we find here about God's mercy... This is connected with his patience. So verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Slow to anger. This, 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 this is a... Is a 
is a concept about God. This is, this is an essential feature of God's nature and speaks to what is an immense patience. And in fact, it identifies something for us. And so I'm going to help you out here. Do you know, here's one sign that you're talking to a, a biblically illiterate person. Right? You ready? Whether you hear them on TV, you're talking to them in person, they will identify themselves as being biblically illiterate if they utter this phrase or a form of it. Well, we know the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. All right? So if somebody says that, it doesn't matter how brilliant the next thing that comes out of their mouth is. It doesn't matter. They're illiterate. They've never, listen, they've never read the Old Testament. I don't know any other, either they've never read it or they're reading, 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 and they're not really reading, but I don't know, they're listening to stuff. Until they get to the stuff about judgment, then they read that and ignore then the rest of it. Because the Old Testament is story after story after story of God's immense patience. Say, what? Yes. Patience. Oh, pastor, what, what, what about the flood? Oh, yeah, God does judge the flood. Yes. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, that's right. Those two events are just a thousand years apart. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. Oh, well, what, what about Egypt? Yeah, you're right. Again, about another thousand years. Yes, yes, he did judge Egypt. Well, what about Israel? Yeah, you're talking centuries again. In other words, when God does judge, and it's often spectacular in the Old Testament... In, the, in terms of the, the, the course of the history of the Old Testament, from Genesis 1-1 to the 400s B.C., all right, the scope of time that the Old Testament covers, God's judgment rarely happens in, in those terms. God's judgment comes after centuries of warning. Centuries. Centuries of telling whether his people are pagan nations, you better straighten up, you better live by the covenant, you better obey. And how many times do we see Old Testament prophets saying, you have ignored this from your fathers to your father's father to your father's father's father. In other words, God only shows immense patience. Slow to anger. I, th I think this, sh this should be profoundly encouraging to us. And, and even this language, by the way, now it does imply, and in fact verse, eight, uh, verse 9 does imply that at times God does strive with us. And I, and I would argue this, this, this means at times there is God's expression of discipline on His people. God does express anger. It's just not forever. In other words, I think it's, it's, it's qualifying this. For God to be slow to anger, what does that imply? At times, God does get angry, right? It doesn't say God never gets angry. That's not a verse. It just says slow to anger. God is patient. Now, at times, does he act in accordance with his righteousness and justice and judgment? You better believe it. By the way, does God still do that? Absolutely. And we should not be too un concerned about that as an option for a nation we live in, all right? I'm just saying, yes, God still does that. But for his people, 
Keeping in mind this psalm is a psalm to the people of God, for His people. This is not something where where God just, you know, flies off the handle. So so this is what's different. God's anger is not like a malevolent anger. It's, It's not a rage. It's not like... It's not like our patience with our children, right? Where there is the proverbial, you know, last straw. And what happens when you hit the last straw, right? Is, is it another calm, sweet, oh no, you shouldn't have done, no, right? In fact, that's often the problem. What we often regret is not the patience. What we often regret as parents is what we do when that patience runs out, right? Mm. God doesn't do that. God's discipline or anger is, it's never, all right, that's it. I'm tired of you people. Get out. I'm, I'm going to give you away, right? I'm going to take all your toys and burn them in the back, all right? Whatever things you all have said, don't look at me like that. You've said them, all right. Whatever things you, you know, so God doesn't do that. God's discipline is, is intentional. It's properly timed. It's appropriate to the circumstances. So God does strive, but it's just not forever. God, God is... God is slow to anger. God's a patient God. You and I should be profoundly grateful for what is the slowness of God to become angry. Number three, God is also a forgiving God, all right? So His mercy is a forgiving mercy. And if up to this point you've not heard anything to be grateful for, and you can read verse 10 and still not be grateful, something, as they say, is way wrong with you. So maybe that offends a few folks, all right? But I'm telling you, verse 10 doesn't at least speak something to you. Something's off because it's a profound promise. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. What's the implication? He could, and he'd be well within his righteousness to do so, but he hasn't. God's not dealt with me on the basis of my, my iniquities and sin are not the baseline from which God makes his decisions about how he's going to relate to me. And that's good news. That God's not treated me this way. He's not relating to me. In fact, it is because of my sin and iniquity that God has done what he has done for me. His mercy and grace is is expressed in that very thing. I can't do for myself what needs to be done. Only he can do it. And so it's a profound expression of what is God's mercy toward us. Then I love how he illustrates this, all right? So he's going to illustrate this this forgiveness in verses 11 and 12. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So think about these two geographical, if you, if you would, Will, geographical illustrations. How far are the heavens above the earth? Well, I mean, as far as we're concerned, that's an infinite number, right? I mean, at, the, at what point 
do you exhaust the heavens? When do you hit the ceiling? Now, by the way, it is, it, you know, it, it, is, it is believed that there are boundaries to our universe. So there could be an answer to this. You could reach the end of the universe, but here's what you have to do to do it. First, you have to be able to travel at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, all right? That sounds pretty fast, okay? So you have to be able to do that. You have to be able to travel at the speed of light, and, and it will only take you 225 trillion years to get to the end. That's it. 225 trillion. I mean, that's, that's a nonsensical number to my mind. You might as well have said a bazillion, all right? It doesn't make any, like, like what is he describing here? What is, what is David describing? How far are the heavens above the earth? Well, they're infinitely above the earth. So, so, so again, there, there, there is, there is this, this, this infinite promise of forgiveness. But then I love this second one. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed. And the language of remove meaning, meaning that forgiven, right, has, has removed our transgressions. Here's what I love about this image. That there's, it's really a, a dual. One, it is an image of infinity, but do you recognize this image is implying something? It's implying a globe, right? Say, wait a minute, you've already dropped some science on us, all right? You're going to do some more? Yeah, to the extent I understand it, okay? You know, a lot of folks would, would, would like to say, well, we didn't believe the earth was round until whatever, a few hundred years ago. Well, apparently the Bible understands that it's a globe, because notice what he does not say. He does not say as far as the north is from the south. Right? He says as far as the east is from the west. Now why would he do that? I mean, if it's flat, if it's two-dimensional, how far does the north extend from the south? It's infinite, right? If it's two-dimensional, at no point do north and south ever meet. Neither does east and west, but he doesn't say north and south and east and west. He just says east and west. Why? Because I think he's talking about a globe. That's why. Because if you and I decided to start walking north today, presuming we could do it, and go however far we wanted to and go through whatever conditions we wanted to go through, what happens? Eventually we walk far enough north, all right, you think of a globe, and what happens to us? I mean, I know my education was at the University of Tennessee, but I'm pretty sure you start going south when you get to the other side, right? And then what happens when, you know, when, so you, 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 pass, you pass by the North Pole, okay? You get down to the bottom and you get to the South Pole, and what's going to happen? You're going to go north again. In other words, there is technically on a globe a point at which north Meet south. That's not what he says. He says as far as the east is from the west. So go ahead, start walking east. At what point do you ever start walking west? Never. Never. You got to turn around to go west, right? You got to make a 180 degree turn to go west. This is why this is such a profound. By the way, this is a couple of you know a few thousand years ago. This was written. All right, 
So I've told you how to identify biblically illiterate people. Now you can identify historically illiterate people. Boy, you didn't realize what you'd get coming to church today, but there you go. All right, so no, the Bible knows that the earth is round. So it's not the only example, by the way. There's a, there's a number of them. But we don't want to miss the illustration. What's he getting at? There's never a point at which God decides to reverse his forgiving work and place back upon you the burden and consequences of your sin. God's mercy, God's for, as expressed in his forgiveness, is there is an infinite expression of that. There's never going to come a time later in your life where God's going to decide, you know what? Nope. Um, this just isn't working, so whatever I have forgiven you in the past, uh, no, you're, you're now going to have to repay that. Here's how I would liken it. You, you, you've seen advertisements for loans for like a car or home repair where they tell you no money down and no interest until Jesus returns, right? Right? No interest until whenever. No, no interest until 2021 or 2022 or whatever it is. Now, what does that mean? That means you're getting a loan, but what happens should you not repay the loan in that period of time? Do you have to pay interest? Oh, yeah. In fact, you have to pay interest on the entirety of the loan, over the entirety of the time frame of the loan. And it's probably at 20 or more percent interest. Can you imagine if that was the promise of salvation? If God laid down the, re the regulation like this, yeah, I'll give you my mercy, uh, but I'll tell you what, uh, no down payment and uh, no interest for the next two years, you prove your worth to me, and it's all free and clear. Can you imagine what it would be like if five years from now, God had to revisit all this, and he decided then, nope, you've not made good on the debt. And so I'm going to return back to you all the penalty and punishment of sin that you've been committing over the course of your entire life, and you're now going to have to pay for it all. Can you imagine if God decided to do that 100 years from now, 500 years from now? We're in glory. It's 1,000 years later, and God says, you know what? Nope, you people haven't earned this. God's forgiveness extends to us for eternity. It's an infinite forgiveness. God will never come back and replace upon you the penalty for your sin. It's been paid for. So God's mercy is abounding. It's long-suffering. It's forgiving. Let me give you, we're going to do two more, all right? You ready? Number, number four, it's understanding. It's understanding. In other words, God's mercy is given to us in light of who we are. He understands what we're like. Verse 13, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. What another beautiful analogy here. God relates to me like a father relates to a little child. He understands who I am. He understands my limitations. He understands my frailty. He understands what I am under the burden of the curse. God gets all of this. 
He knows my frame. He remembers that I'm dust. You know what I love about how God relates to us? This is going to sound weird, and I hope I can work my way out of it. God really doesn't have very high expectations for you. He doesn't expect much from us. What I mean is, God knows we're not superstar spiritual athletes, right? God knows that. You know, sometimes we can become delusional about ourselves. Have you ever known anybody who's delusional? I mean, I know I'm not. Uh, I know I'm pretty great. But I mean, other people can be pretty delusional about themselves and their qualities. Parents can often be delusional about their children and their abilities, right? The next, the next great whatever scientist, the next great whatever athlete. Aren't you glad God doesn't relate to you that way? I know this sounds strange, but aren't you glad that God's expectations for you? That they're not high expectations. He knows your frame. And what is your frame? Dust. I don't know about you, but I can... Is there any other worse material to make something out of? Does anybody think, you know what? I'm going to build a house. What I need, though, I need to find the best dust I can find on the planet, right? I mean, no, nobody says that, right? God knows that I'm dust. And just in case you don't think that's enough information, he goes on to say, as for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, he flourishes, for the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and its place remembers it no more. God understands me. In fact, God understands me better than I understand myself. And you know what's amazing about that? Brothers and sisters in Christ, God knows your frame, and He saved you anyway. If you can't be grateful for that, I don't have much more to give you. It's unconnected to my circumstance. Doesn't matter what's happening with coronavirus. Doesn't matter what's happening with the election. God relates to me in light of my frame. He understands. And then this gives us one more, all right? One more, and and this this will just take a minute. God's mercy then is motivating. Notice he's he's made comments like this throughout, but then he brings it, you know, kind kind of to the forefront in verses 17 and 18. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children, to such as keep His covenant, and to those who remember His commandments to do them. Now, at first blush, that might sound like, Pastor, you, you seem to be um, contradicting what you just said. So what we need to do is understand this in light of what it means to be a covenant people and especially in light of the new covenant. We won't go into all the detail that we could, but to put it simply, what is David saying here? He's identifying this mercy as being made available to the people of God. He's not saying you've got to work for it. He's not saying you've got to keep commandments in order to get God's mercy. He's saying this mercy is given to those who by faith have feared Him and by faith live in light of His covenant. In other words, it is a motivating mercy. 
It is a mercy that then does motivate me to live in faith, to live in light of the faith that's been given to me, to live in the fear of the Lord, to keep God's commandments. God's mercy should motivate me to live faithfully and obediently to Him because of all that it means to be under God's mercy. And not only, not only does it, but it motivates me knowing that even in those moments when I fail and I will fail, God's mercy then again is extended to me in an abounding sense. God's grace is an abounding grace that restores me when I sin and empowers me for ongoing faithfulness. This is the mercy of God. I know that probably nothing I've shared this morning, you thought I've never heard that before, but we need to rehearse these things, don't we? We need to rehearse them. We need to remember them because we can forget them. We have every reason to bless God. It doesn't matter what's happening in our world. This is true. I bless God when I acknowledge all of His mercy to me, mercy that is abounding, that is long-suffering, that is forgiving, that is understanding, that is motivating. This is God's mercy to us. Now, I would make an appeal, though, to anybody who's here upon hearing this. You should understand all that I've said. This is God's promise to His people. So if you're here today and you've never confessed Jesus Christ as Savior, if you've never confessed that you are a sinner, unable to save yourself, if you've never confessed that Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead and that in Him and Him alone is the means of salvation, if you've never called upon that name of the Lord, crying out for mercy, I implore you to do just that. Because God is a God of mercy and grace and He will save. He will withhold what we deserve and give us what we don't. But God does expect His people to come to Him in repentance and trusting in Christ. If you've not done that, I would encourage you to do so. But you might say here today, no, I'm a believer. I've trusted in Him. Let me ask you, have the fears and anxiety of the day overtaken you? Have you allowed yourself to be distracted by the ways in which the world is trying to get you to view the world? Stop it. Stop it. You be a child of the king, living in light of a kingdom that is soon to come. You are a blessed people, church. You're blessed. You don't have enough words to express how blessed you are. So we will bless God. Let us get our eyes off our circumstances and the world that we live in and turn our gaze to this shepherd who has cared for us and loved us and will do so for all eternity. Let's stand together. I'm going, to sing, I'm going to pray and then we'll sing together. We'll sing about this great shepherd and his goodness toward us. Father God, we do thank you for the gathering of your people. We thank you for this word. We thank you for your mercy. And God, we pray that we would as your people live in light of what is this tremendous mercy expressed to us. That we not allow ourselves to be distracted by the world. Father, keep us then from the ways in which we can forget these benefits. May we rehearse them heart and mind so that our lives are enriched by a deep understanding of your great mercy toward us. And that in that, as your word is brought to bear on our lives, you would then use it to continue to make us God-fearing, covenant-keeping people that you are glorified in us. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.